This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Andy McCarthy has a big brain, a big legal mind, and he is my guest today. And welcome here. Thanks, Bill. Former chief assistant U.S. attorney, worked out of New York City. That's right. And you see him a lot now on the Fox News Channel. Bill Barr takes questions from senators for six hours on Wednesday. He passes on the House on Thursday. A lot has happened this week. Sure has. Where are we going next? Bill, the next big thing is Mueller. There was a lot of questioning of Barr about whether Mueller would come to testify. Barr's been saying, I think since his testimony a couple of weeks ago before the appropriations committees, that he was fine with Mueller testifying. And my sense is that Mueller is going to want to testify because I think people like me uh, and and other analysts have been very critical of him for failing to resolve the obstruction charge and leaving it to bar to decide it. it seemed to me that obstruction was the big thing that he had to decide and he and he was derelict in not deciding it i think he's going to want to explain himself on that i don't think he likes i think the whole reason for that letter that caused all the controversy uh, at the hearing was because of I think that was a reaction to the press criticism of his failure to resolve the obstruction. So I think he's going to want to defend himself so on that. So Barr sends a letter to Congress several weeks ago. He, the testimony this past week was voluntary. Right. So in order to be compelled to appear, Jerry Nadler, the Democrat chair of the House Judiciary Committee, would have to issue a subpoena. Correct. And Barr would have to make a decision. Does he appear based on the subpoena or does he fight it? Right. Uh, we went through this with Eric Holder for a time when he was the attorney general. What do you think Bill Barr would do at that point? Or maybe it's an easier question to say, who, whose move is it next? I think the attorney general, current Barr's, the attorney general Barr is highly unlikely to fight a subpoena, even if he doesn't like the terms under which... Nadler's committee wants to proceed with the questioning. I think, Bill, it's a very different situation from Holder with Fast and Furious because the Obama administration was determined not to allow the underlying documents and files in that investigation to be disclosed. That was what that dispute was all about. Here, you have a situation where we have this 448-page report that Barr didn't have to disclose as a matter of law, and he's put out 95% of it, right? So it doesn't make sense to me that they would make that kind of effort to be transparent, as they've said, and then start to look like they're stonewalling when they don't have anything to stonewall about. And to me, you know, the fact that you'd have to answer questions from a committee lawyer instead of a committee member is not a good enough reason to go into... The, you, you mentioned the special counsel law, he could have kept this all private. That's right. And in fact, Bill, 
the regulations, the special counsel regulations, are meant to make the special counsel relationship with the attorney general similar to what the relationships are between prosecutors and their supervisors in U.S. attorney's offices all over the country. When I was a prosecutor for 20 years, once or twice a year, when I was a supervisor, I did it, you know, I was in the other chair. But when I had my own cases, a supervisor would go through them with me once or twice a year, and we would decide which ones should be closed and which ones were worth pursuing. That information, you know, the decision that you make either to decline to prosecute or why you decide to go forward to prosecute is never a public decision. It's a it's a exchange of information that goes on in the chain of command in the Justice Department. And the indip- the special counsel regulations came into effect after the independent counsel statute lapsed. And it's been 20 years. Yeah, and and Ken Starr is always great talking about this because he knows more about this than anyone else does. That was that thing was kind of like a constitutional anomaly because it was a prosecutor, but it reported to Congress and then also reported to the Justice Department. There was court involvement in it. Um, The special counsel, on the other hand, was meant to be a Justice Department prosecutor. He is just he's like a subordinate, like any other U.S. attorney or assistant U.S. attorney. It is a completely Justice Department show. Uh, and, the ex- again, the exchange of information about the decision you make whether to prosecute or to decline to prosecute in the Justice Department is ordinarily something that does not get publicized. So Barr, in this instance, put out information that normally would not yeah. be public. Um, what you're saying is that Bob Mueller worked for Bill Barr. Correct. Um, and if you read the four-page statement that Barr had prepared that he did not read, he just skimmed through it when he was before the Senate on Wednesday, there's a line in there that says Bob Mueller's an employee, essentially, of the Department of Justice. And it, it, it was my sense just listening to him. He, he was not as direct as he was in his letter, but he was essentially saying, Mueller works for us. Right. Remember when he said, this is my baby? Mm-hmm. That was one of the more famous things that came out of the hearing. The context of that was to say Mueller is a subordinate prosecutor in the executive branch. He had an assignment. It was to do this investigation. The way that the regulations work, once he's done all of his cases, and and what he did was he indicted a bunch. He saw the Man- the Manafort ones through. Some of the cases got transferred to other components of the Justice Department. But at the end of the rainbow, under the regulations, he writes a report. Once he gives that report to the attorney general, he is done. A couple of weeks ago on this podcast, Michael Mukasey, former attorney general, is on here. And he, was, he, he said on page one of the Mueller report, it says that the Russians tried to mess with our election. Right. And then he asked the following question here. When did Bob Mueller know, or when did the people who worked with him know, that there was no coordination, which was what they were looking for as a with, kind with, of a, with Moscow. With Moscow, when did when did they realize that? And whenever they realized that, shouldn't they have told the rest of us? Mm. Yeah. See, I think Judge Mukasey is right about that, and I think we can virtually fix a date when they knew. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the Carter Page FISA warrants, right? Um, the last warrant they got for Page was in June of 2017. 
Uh, I give Mueller a pass on that one because he just got appointed in May. He was still staffing up. He's recruiting people. He's setting up an office. He's trying to get his arms around what happened, right? It's a 90-day warrant, so they would have been due by mid to late September to go back for another warrant. Interesting. By the time September rolls around, everybody in the Justice Department and the FBI who had anything to do with either the warrants or the Steele affidavit or the Steele dossier is gone. And it's now Mueller's decision at that point, do we go back into the FISA court and reaffirm what we have been telling them four separate times, namely that there's this big Trump-Russia espionage conspiracy that we think Carter Page is a part of, or do we do we not feel comfortable enough standing behind that information to make those representations again? They elected not to seek a new warrant. So I think at that point in time, they had a lot of concern about whether the representations that had been made about collusion to the FISA court were true. And I'm convinced that sometime between September and the end of the year, they clearly knew that there was no collusion case because, Bill, if you read Mueller's indictments that he filed, especially the ones against the two groups of Russians, they preclude the possibility that there was collusion between the Russians and anyone mm. on the American side, not just Trump. Anyone. So just so we know, fix a date. At what point do you think he knew? Between September and December. Of 2017. 17. And we found out when? In... About five minutes ago, seemingly. <laughs> you know. Well, but but this is a this five is a big issue. Ago. Well, that what this means. I I consider this to be more a failure on the part of Rod Rosenstein. I, I think Tr- Mueller shares the blame on this, but Rosenstein was the deputy attorney general with Sessions recused, who was the supervisor here. And I, for the life of me, do not know why they didn't at some point say. We're going to issue an interim report because this is too important to the president's ability to govern the country. This isn't about Trump. It's about the governance of the United States, where you say, look, we are continuing with our important investigation, counterintelligence investigation of Russia. We are continuing with our obstruction investigation to the extent that that's a criminal investigation. But we are putting out a report now to say, We have closed the file on President Trump and his campaign with respect to Russian collusion. And I believe if they had put that out, Bill, at the end of 2017, you would have gotten a lot less misbehavior out of Trump that turns into a lot of the obstruction case. But Casey's question is, why did he? Why did he not give us that information? Yeah, and I think that's a it, it's a question maybe, that maybe deserves that, to be answered. Maybe that comes up at the hearing. Yep. Another point here: about a month ago, Trey Gowdy was on this program also, and my question to him was, "How much do we not know?" This is what he said: "What did Russia try to do to us?" And when I say over half the story hasn't been told, I think at some point my fellow citizens are going to realize it wasn't just the DNC that was targeted. It wasn't just John Podesta. It was a whole lot of folks, a whole lot of Americans were targeted by Russia and will view Russia as the common enemy instead of viewing one another through a political prism as the enemy. I'm not so sure that's a legal question for you, but how much was Russia messing with us? His conclusion is that we've been told only 50 percent of what they know. I I think um, former Congressman Gowdy is right about that. 
uh, it was not just Hillary Clinton with a target on her. Uh, there was much more to it. But I also think, Bill, in terms of the scope of the threat, um, I think it's been overblown in a lot of ways. I'm not saying it's unimportant or it's trivial, but I do want to make this point. In real time during the 2016 campaign, the Obama administration knew what Russia was trying to do. We know that because uh, we've seen the reporting. Uh, John Brennan, who was the CIA director, took it up with his counterpart in Russia and President Obama himself in around September or so of, of 2016, took it up with Vladimir mm-hmm. Putin, right? Now, the reason I think this is important is if you remember the last debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton about two weeks before Election Day, Trump suggested that he might not accept the legitimacy of the election. He said, we'll have to see what happens. Uh, and Hillary Clinton acted like she was horrified that anybody could question the legitimacy of our elections. President Obama then went on the stump and gave Trump a hard time for questioning the legitimacy of the election. At that moment when they were making that argument, there's nothing significant about Russia's interference in the election that we know now that they didn't know then. So I'm not saying it's it's trivial, but at the same time, they didn't think it was significant enough to do anything about it when it happened, and they were not going to allow it to have any negative impact or any tainting effect at all on what was expected to be Hillary Clinton's victory in the campaign. What Barr also said this week with regard to Chris Ray, the FBI director, he said the following, done a superb job. Um, we're working together and trying to reconstruct exactly what went down. Why don't we try and define what that is? As to what went down. And when the Steele dossier came up during the hearing this week about Russian disinformation as suggesting that it's behind the dossier itself, what Barr said is that that's not entirely speculative. Right. Read into that. I think they already have colorable information. That doesn't mean that I want to be clear now because I don't want, I'm not jumping to the conclusion. This is not dispositive. It hasn't been decided. This is like an early stage of the investigation, but it is not a frivolous concern. There's colorable reason to believe that this is that the Steele dossier is the result of Russian disinformation, which means they're doing what I think the FBI should have done before they went to the FISA court. They are digging into the Steele dossier identifying who the sources are and where this information could have come from. And if it's sourced back to the Putin regime and it turns out that it was information that they had reason to know was false, that they channeled into our intelligence product, then that's a that's every indication that that's disinformation. So then Lindsey Graham comes on during that hearing and says, do you share my concerns about the FISA warrant process? And he said, yes. Right. He said, do you share my concerns about the Clinton investigation with regard to the email, the server, the bleach bit, the hammer? He said, yes. Does any of this change the bottom line on the Mueller report? And he said, no. I guess the question then becomes, when do we find out as to how and why government officials made the decisions when they did during the campaign of 2016? I think, Bill, we're going to start getting the answers in the next four to six weeks when we can expect that 
Inspector General Horowitz's reports are going to start flowing out. He's looking at some of the decision-making that was made in connection with the investigations, and as I understand it, in particular, the FISA abuse. As far as the timeline of the rest of it is concerned, there are are some factors involved that we don't have enough information on. We know that Attorney General Barr has said that he personally is looking into this and that he has a team of people in the Justice Department that are helping him. I think what we don't know is whatever happened— to the investigation by Uber, John Uber, the uh, U.S. attorney in Utah, who Attorney General Sessions in 2017 assigned to take a look at this. And that was an important assignment, Bill, because the inspector general is a very thorough, meticulous guy. I served with him in the U.S. attorney's office in New York. He's a terrific lawyer, good investigator. He does not have the full array of powers of a federal prosecutor. And he's kind of limited in his jurisdiction because he can only look at people who are really currently in the Justice Department and the FBI. Um, You know, he can look at the paper trail on people who've left. But as a practical matter, it's not like he can convene a grand jury or, you know, do the normal investigative things a, a prosecutor can do. This has to be looked at by prosecutors who have the full array of prosecutorial authority, including grand jury power. Well, I tell you, um. It was suggested to me this past week, but part of the reason why you want to beat up on Bill Barr is to ruin his credibility, or at least dent it a little bit. And the reason you do that is in case he comes back and hits you with some charges that you're describing now. Bill, this is what these guys are good at. Um, to, To explain what I mean by that, when Trump won, right? Nobody expected Trump to win. I think a large part of the reason that they did a lot of the things that they did was everybody knew Hillary was going to win. And in addition to that, they did everything by counterintelligence. So it was all under the code of classification, right? So they they figured this was never going to get out. When Trump won, what that meant was in 10 weeks, he was going to be president and he was going to have access to all of the intelligence files of the executive branch, all of the top secret information in government. So if you're sitting there and you're the Obama administration, you have a choice, right? You can say, well, you know, Trump's a kind of a calm guy, right? We don't need to worry too much about him. Um, We'll be able to explain to him that there was a good reason to do the investigation, and I'm sure it'll all blow over and it'll be no big deal. Um, Or down here in planet Earth, you could say, Trump is going to go crazy when he finds out about this, so it's inevitably going to come out anyway. Since it's inevitably going to come out anyway, we have 10 weeks while we're still in charge of the government. And I think they spent those 10 weeks projecting that there was a profound threat of a Trump-Russia conspiracy that they, that made for a worthy investigation. In other words, they they tried to between leaks and information that got put out and the way that they structured this investigation, including continuing the Carter Page uh, FISA surveillance and giving Trump only partial information about what they were actually doing, but especially the leaking, the classified leaking, they created an impression that there was a big Trump-Russia thing to be worried about. And the reason they did that was because they knew that this was eventually going to come out 
and they needed to justify why they used the government's extraordinary counterintelligence powers to investigate the opposition presidential campaign. You're, you're suggesting they were trying to cover their tracks. I'm trying uh, that they were trying to justify their tracks. Mm-hmm. I've heard you speak about a defensive briefing that did not happen with the Trump campaign. Right. What's a defensive briefing? So let's say we thought that there were one or two people who might be Russian agents. We didn't have uh, solid information for sure, but we had reason. We had colorable reason to worry that a couple of people in the orbit of a campaign were Russian agents and that they were trying to infiltrate the campaign either to conduct Russian influence operations, to gather information and get it back to Russia, whatever reason they would have to do espionage. What you would normally do in that situation, that is not an unprecedented situation by any means. What you would ordinarily do is quietly the FBI, which is not only our premier law enforcement service, it is our domestic intelligence service, right? The, The CIA can't operate inside the United States. The FBI handles domestic intelligence and counterintelligence. What you would normally do is have the FBI reach out to responsible people that you could trust in the campaign and say, look, you've got a problem with, you know, this person or that person. You'd be better off marginalizing them, get them out of the campaign, whatever. So I think Attorney General Barr's point in his testimony was that if you look at the Trump campaign circa spring of 2016, Mm -hmm. you've got three guys in the campaign at least who are former United States attorneys who have impeccable credentials in the national security realm between the Justice Department and the intelligence services. Rudy Giuliani... Jeff Sessions, and Chris Christie. So it wasn't like the Bureau didn't have anybody they could approach. They also had Mike Flynn, who had been the... the so then they made a choice not to. Correct. And I think the reason you make a choice not to is what if you decide that the problem isn't that you have one or two bad apples in the campaign? What if you decide that the candidate is the Russian agent? And I think that's what they wanted to decide. And that's what the Steele dossier says. What is your expectation? For, does Don McGahn, the former attorney, does he testify or do they fight the subpoena? Um, do they do something similar, meaning the White House, for other potential witnesses? Which would mean the subpoena battle would go to court. Yeah. And in all likelihood, this gets... It goes on for a while. Yeah. Is it six months or a year? What is your sense of that? Well, here's what I think is going to happen. Um, the Democrats, everybody thinks the Democrats are going to make a big deal about uh, obstruction. They still want to play out the collusion thing. I think the Democrats' strategy, if they can get Mueller to come in, will be to have a much narrower target than that. Such as? McGahn and witness tampering. I, I think they're gonna. Their narrow target is to say that in January of 2018, when Trump supposedly tried to get McGahn to change his story about what had happened six months earlier about the order to fire Mueller and oh, was it really an order, et cetera. What the Democrats are going to home in on is that transaction in January of 2018. The reason is twofold. Number one. It's a very uncomfortable thing to talk about. It's the, in the whole report, in my view, it's the worst thing for Trump. It's the closest thing to witness tampering. It's the, it's the most damaging thing in the report for him. So just as, a, as an old trial lawyer, 
I want to be asking about what's going to make you squirm. So I'd be going after that for, for no other reason than, than that. But the second thing is it raises McGann's profile so that the next thing you do is then you issue the subpoena for McGann. After you've educated the public about who McGann is and how he fits into mm -hmm. your theory of obstruction with respect to Trump, then you go after him. on the So um, if I say something, but it doesn't happen, right. if I tell you to do something and you don't do it, right. is that a crime? It depends is, on— Is that criminal intent or is that gossip? Well— it depends on, on what it is. Certain things are not crimes unless they're completed acts. So, like, if I charge you with bank robbery, i gotta, I got to prove that you robbed the bank, right? If I charge you with obstruction, let's say you, Bill, are in a trial for whatever reason, and you decide to bribe a juror, and you offer a juror a $100,000 bribe to find the case in your favor. The juror doesn't take the bribe, and, it, and the case otherwise doesn't get affected. You've still obstructed justice. You've still obstructed the proceeding. And it always depends on how a statute is written. So the obstruction statute says if you endeavor corruptly to pervert the proceedings, you're guilty of obstruction whether you succeed or not. Conspiracy is very similar. In a conspiracy, we always say that if, if the conspiracy is successful, the success of the venture is the best evidence that there was a conspiracy in the first place. But the conspiracy is actually the agreement to do the thing, not not the actual successful carrying out of it. So it really depends. So you've on, read the Mueller report. Was there uh, obstruction or not? I don't uh, I don't think so. And it's because there are legal issues with the with the president that that are not present with respect to other witnesses. I Meaning? Well, there are certain things that you and I could do that they could say are corrupt acts. Right. If the president were to, say, issue a pardon under circumstances where you think that he's appealing to somebody who might otherwise give evidence against him, right, um, I don't think a prosecutor can reach that because it's an Article Two prerogative of the president to give pardons. So the way the system's supposed to work, that doesn't mean he's above the law or it can't be reached. Congress can impeach him for abusing his power. But if a president is carrying out lawful exercises of his constitutional powers, whether it's pardons, weighing in on whether somebody should be prosecuted, uh, firing a subordinate executive officer, a federal prosecutor can't reach that criminally on the theory that the subordinate executive official, the, the prosecutor, decides that the president had corrupt intent. If you're going to get the if you're going to get the president criminally for obstruction, it has to be an inherently corrupt act. And Barr talked about this in his testimony. Mm -hmm. It's got to be traditional uh, evidence destruction and and the like. Um, so I don't think, with the eleven transactions that that Mueller lays out, that the government would have been able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, which you would have to do, that Trump had corrupt intent. I want to I want to be clear on this because I think Barr the most right thing that Barr said was that we have to stop looking at our politics through the prism of criminal prosecution. I am not saying by virtue of the fact that I don't think this was indictable that this was good. I think there's a lot of stuff in there that's very disturbing. Mm.
Two final points here. <clears throat> I ran into my colleague Neil Cavuto earlier in the week. And he says, Bill, isn't it an amazing thing how two people can watch the same thing and draw entirely different conclusions? Right. You, probably, right. you probably find that law all the time. The, it, it's, a, it's amazing. In every trial, when a jury gets instructed by the court, um, the court gives the, the jury some ways to think about the credibility of witnesses. And one of the things that you always have to tell people is that sometimes two people look at the same thing and they have versions that are 180 degrees apart because one's lying. Sometimes it's because one person honestly perceived it in a way that was different from the other person. And what the challenge always is in these situations is you have to look at it in the totality of everything you know and your common sense about why people act and what motivates them to act and make as good a conclusion as you can about whether somebody's lying to you or not. You never know. Andy McCarthy, terrific having you in today, and we'll see what unfolds. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. 